Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. The other day, my daughter made a, a bad decision, and, and we grounded her, and we told her she couldn't go anywhere, and that she needed to have a conversation with me. And, and the other night, she comes into our room after she gets off work, and it's late, and she comes in, and she's ready to be accountable, which is something she's struggled with throughout her life, is to just own her behavior and to be accountable to it. And so she came into our room and we had this long conversation, really good. One of the best conversations I've had with, with this particular child. And uh, we sat and we talked about how hard it is to be a human being. And um, I want to play a little bit of audio here from Ram Das. Maybe I'm saying that wrong. I think that's how he says his name. Uh, he is a American spiritual teacher, psychologist, and author. He was born Richard Alpert. Uh, he became a disciple of Hindu guru Neem Karoli Baba, uh, who gave him the name Ram Das, meaning servant of God. And Ram Das is one of these, uh, if you're out in this almost awakened space and thinking about the kinds of things that we talk about in this podcast, you may have heard his name and maybe you're extremely familiar with him. But I want to play a little bit. Of, he, and he's since deceased, by the way. He died back in December of 2019, so somewhat recently, just just you know, late last year. And, you know, which wasn't all bad considering how 2020 has gone. Uh, he may have, he may have checked out right at the right moment. Um, but he was, I think around 80 years old or so. And I want to, I want to play some audio from him. And he, and the, uh, somebody uh, asked him the question about how to love yourself. And his answer brought up a lot of thoughts within me of things that I've been talking to with my daughter and trying to help her understand better what it means to be a healthy, responsible, growing human being. And, and it brought up, there's lots of little tangents here, and so I hope that you, you'll be patient with me as we kind of run through some of these. But first off, as a kid, right, as a, as a kid, you, you don't recognize, you, you see your parents. I remember seeing my parents, and I have good parents. My mom died last year from cancer. My dad is still really healthy, alive, and well. Um, but I had really good parents, and uh, my mother and my father loved me. They spent time with me. They gave me attention. They uh, modeled what I thought was relatively healthy human behavior. And as a kid, you watch your parents and you see them as different than you. You see like, oh, I'm a kid. I just sit here and do stuff all day. And I play with my toys and I go outside. And you look at your parents and they're these grown, wise, mature adults and you trust them to have it figured out. You really do. Like you you somehow nobody nobody taps you on the shoulder and says, "Hey, little little kid, hey little kid, just so you know, your parents really aren't that much further ahead than you are. They know some more things. They have more information in their brain. They've had more experiences. They've um 
they they appear because they've grown. They're they're taller and they've got facial hair and they've got full grown breasts and and so you look at your parents and you're like, oh, they're adults, and I'm just a kid, and this thing is so different. And and the reality is that your parents, especially if they had you when they were somewhat young, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, it's one thing if they had you when they were 40. But if they had you when they were young, it's almost like you wake up one day and you go like, oh, like I, I'm an adult now and I barely have this shit figured out and I'm kind of just luckily moving along without killing my kids and losing them and having them, you know, get hurt in tragic accidents, falling out of trees. And, and then I, and then I impose my trauma on them because my parents traumatized me and I'm just, I'm screwing my kids up and I've got four kids and they have all their own shadows and mechanisms. And, and so you, you wake up one day as an adult and you go like, Oh, I'm kind of a piece of shit. And and I'm not really doing that great at this human thing. Like, I'm doing good enough to look the part, but I'm, I'm saying unhealthy shit to my kids. I'm saying unhealthy shit to my wife. I'm an unhealthy human being, and I'm full of mechanisms. And as I watched my parents get older, as I also became more observant and aware, I began to see that they had mechanisms and shadows that I never picked up on when I was a kid, that I just thought they were doing a hell of a good job. And they had moments where the two of them didn't get along. My dad would sometimes drink and he would go to the bar after work and he'd stay too late. And by the time he got home, my mom would lock the door and not let him in because she's asked him to be more committed to our home. And so um, the, he, she would call the police and the police would come and make him go somewhere else for the night. And like, there was drama, but it was rare and it didn't happen regularly. My dad was present uh, in our family. My mom and dad were both actively involved with their children. They were both held uh, stable jobs and uh, provided a good living for their, for their kids. And they took their kids places and did things with me and my brother that in no way, shape or form would I classify my home as an unhealthy space to grow up in. To the contrary, I think I was one of the luckiest people uh, to live, to have the parents I did and to live the childhood that I did and to have the experiences I was given. I think in a large part, they have contributed to uh, who I am today. And um, But I realized as they were getting older and as I would go as an adult with my children, their grandchildren to their home, and we'd spend the day with my mom and dad, that I realized like, oh, they have all this shit between them and they use their unhealthy mechanisms against each other and they uh, are defensive and they are attacking, um, they're deflecting, they're, they're not being accountable here. They're, like I see all this unhealthy human behavior. And I think to myself like, damn, glad I don't have that shit. And then one day you wake up and you're like, oh, I've got a lot of shit too. And over the last year, year and a half, I've had to sit with my my wife, who I have at times caused lots of trauma to, and begin the process of owning it. Because in the first half of life, I wasn't accountable to it. I was experiencing at times turmoil inside of me, a sensation of discomfort inside of me. And I needed to reach out to the world 
and put the world back into whatever order I needed it to be in so that I could once again regain my comfort. And so I needed my wife to fit in and I needed my children to fit in. And that was so that I could be okay. And, and at some point when you, when you start to awaken, you begin to sit with yourself and you begin to go like, oh, I'm a piece of shit. I'm a piece of shit. I cause harm. I'm, I'm not treating the people I love in such a way as to give them a safe space to grow up and to be them. And so with that introduction, I want to start playing Ram Das, and then I'll, I'll jump in here from time to time and just share some thoughts that came up uh, during this and hope that each of you can make some connections with this too. Ram Das, yes. how can we love ourselves more, please? Instead of the term, how can we love ourselves more, I'd like to ask, how can we accept ourselves more? Um, that in the way most of us have been socialized, the way in which a child gets, uh, learns, the initial learning, is that um, the parent is under pressure to socialize the child, to make the child socially functional. And in doing that, they, um, they emotionally, whether they intend to or not, reward and punish the, the child for behaviors. And the result is that when that starts very early, before there is a lot of reasoning process between the parent and the child, the child develops certain emotional feelings that certain ways it is in its natural state are not acceptable. Think about that. Think, think about who you are. Think about the shit you do wrong. Think about your unhealthy behaviors and the mechanisms you have, the shadows that you have that deflect and obfuscate, that get defensive, that attack the other person, that place blame outside yourself. Think about all of the dark places you are and then recognize, sit for a moment with the idea that what else could we have been? What else could we have been? Because we human beings have been around, I think, for 200,000 years, and our common ancestor with the other primates goes back 2 million years. And so 2 million years ago, whatever we were, we sat around and we groomed each other, but we also attacked each other. And at some point, we invented language, and we invented gossip, and we invented uh, sh shitty behaviors that involved our language and our violent acts. And as we um, used language, by the way, th the best surviving groups, the ones that continued on and are in our family tree, if we go back far enough, are the ones that collaborated together in the largest groups possible, because those are the groups that survived. And in order for the largest groups possible to survive, the individual's uh, uh, healthiness wasn't paramount. What was paramount was the cohesiveness of the group unit and working together. So the idea of putting shame on someone for not performing, the idea of embarrassing someone, of gossiping about someone when they don't keep the communal rules, and the need to have rules that fit the collective, even if they don't fit a large portion of the, of the minority. Because every human being is different, so different. Every human being is so different. And yet we create, going back again, 200,000 years ago, we create 
rules and boundaries that fit the collective and keep us all working together in spite of those rules and boundaries not fitting well with each individual person. And so when you have an individual who doesn't fit the mold because something about them and their expression is different, then the rules of the community deem that we embarrass them and we shame them. And so what uh, Ramdas here is saying, and I'm trying to say his name right here, Ramdas is saying is that you were under pressure to be socialized. And we've been doing it for hundreds of thousands of years that our collective tribe, the human tribe, and as we've split off into uh, all different kinds of tribes within that, under that umbrella, we have under pressure as parents, it is our job to teach our children the social cues and the appropriate behaviors and right and wrong. And, and in the reality is none of us do that really well because we're under so much peer pressure to implement the collective rules and the collective boundaries and the collective etiquette at the expense of hurting and traumatizing and shaming the individual who doesn't fit that mold. But what other choice did we have? To, to do that is to be human. And so my parents traumatized me intentionally and unintentionally. And they were healthy, good parents because they were pieces of shit. And their parents and their community traumatized them. And their grandparents traumatized their parents. And it goes back all the way until the creature is, is hunched over, walking on its feet and knuckles. And so we don't have any choice. And I want to play a little bit here. This is a Netflix uh, stand-up special uh, by Sam Jay. And she speaks right to the heart of this. And, and I should set it up. She's an incredible stand-up comedian. I, I would recommend anybody who likes stand-up comedy, if you don't mind some crudeness. Uh, stand-up comedy for me is an, a beautiful way to dive into human behavior and human mechanisms and to see inside myself as a good stand-up comic points us to ourselves. And throughout this uh, stand-up special, uh, Sam Jay, who is an uh, African-American lesbian woman, she just points at all of these things that go on within us and in our society, within our culture, and how we, how, we, um, how we react to each other and how we respond to each other and how we behave to each other. And, and then she starts talking about you know, wanting children and, and whether she really does or doesn't. And then she goes off into this, this little segment. Fine, have one, whatever. Plus, I don't know, you need them. They represent you when you, like, you know, you make them so they could be like, that nigga was here, you know? <laughs> Eventually you die, you hope your kids still alive. be like, they were a person, you know, just represent you. I will do, I don't know. I just think I'm gonna be bad at the shit. No, nobody's good. Every parent sucks. No, if you're out here and you're parenting, you're trash. No one does it right. Everyone fucks their kids up. Everyone makes a fucked up, fucked up kid. Everyone's doing a little bit to fucking damage the child. Because you were damaged. So how could you not? How could you not pass on the damage that was given to you? It's just impossible. But you just keep enough of it. Like, I could really fuck you up, but I'm only fucking you up a little bit. Because there's a lot that could go wrong because I'm really fucked up, you know? And then you cuff what you can. But everybody's doing a shitty job. Everybody. The only way you know like you're doing an all right job is if your kids never tell you you were shitty because then they loved you and you raised compassionate kids. <laughs> right? If your kids never like, hey, you fucked me up. If they're just like, mom, you did a great job. Then you just raised good kids because they don't want to tell you the truth <laughs> and hurt your feelings. 
If you got a kid who's 40, still like, I fucking hate you. You did a terrible job. <laughs> that, and if you lose one of them niggas, then, then you really failed. <laughs> I think about that all the time. I don't want to be one of the ones that lose one of them niggas, because people be losing their kids. You lose one at a store, bitch, you suck. <laughs> Shit. Because no one, no one does this shit right. Everyone fucks it up a tad. No one trusts their parents. No one ain't here fully 100% trusted their parents. Because you see your parents do fucked up shit. You've heard them have fucked up arguments, you know? You've seen their lives being in shambles when they thought they were keeping you from their lives being in shambles. They were trying to have those late night conversations, which is for a kid, like 10.30 at night. <laughs> That's when parents think it's time to talk for real. Because <laughs> they're dumb. It's like, no one's asleep at 10.30, you idiot. You're not asleep at 10.30. Everyone's wide awake. And they're like, now's the time to talk about it. Get down to the bottom of shit. Everyone's <laughs> heard their parents yelling about some bullshit like a $99 cable bill. How are we going to pay this? Your mother sucks. What is my house? <laughs> I can't trust anyone in this motherfucker. <laughs> Because parents like to present it like they got everything together. That's the problem. You don't got to lie. Stop coming like you got everything. You're not good. Most of you start 30 when you start. I'm 38. If I had a kid at 30, that nigga be dead. <laughs> you don't know what the fuck you're doing. Just be honest. Just go, hey, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to try to keep you alive. And sometimes I'm not going to be able to, so look out for yourself. Look at that. <laughs> and so, so how can we be great at this thing? How can we, what chances do we have to just be really good healthy, wise, um, happy human beings when, when so much trauma has been handed to us from generation to generation. And by the way, the science says that we store some sort of memory of the trauma that we receive in our DNA. And for those who are doubting that statement, I will leave uh, links in the resource notes so that you can go read up on uh, the studies that have been done that scientifically show when you study the behavior of children born before and children born after certain traumatic events happen and how we now know that on some level when we experience hard stuff, some memory of that experience is stored in our DNA. So how could we get it right? We're, we're just all fucking it up. We're all messing it up. We're all imperfect people who have been handed down instruction from other imperfect people and so much trauma like even the healthiest of us so much trauma in our lives back to ram das and the result is some feelings of unworthiness or inadequacy or something in most human beings as a result of socialization very few people ever come through socialization unscathed in some way or other i mean that's not an unfair statement i don't think um, so in a way you could see that ego or personality is in a way built upon, and that's where Freud understood it. He saw that the, the, the uh, repression of id or impulse life because of the way the society has to deal with a child's impulses to get it to be socialized usually is left with a feeling that... Um, Somehow I'm bad. I have these things that are not acceptable. And um, 
So uh, then you build this social structure, and often what you end up with is a personality that says, that's constantly looking to the world and other people, do you approve of me? Do you like me? Am I good enough? Am I acceptable to you? And uh, he, have I achieved enough? Here is a, and you get an A for effort, and you feel good. And if you don't get the A, it's not like you feel nothing, you feel bad. And it's as if the baseline is negative, not zero. Do you hear the issue that I'm talking about? Now, um, so that you're constantly using your life experiences as a way to disprove a basic negative feeling about yourself. That's a very, very common thing in, in social structure and in human development, in ego development. Now, um, so most, many psychological systems, like Freud's system, for example, works primarily with negative going to zero. That's the, the domain that you work with. Right behind that is where the spiritual dimension begins, and that's a part that looks at the universe and just sees it as it is. It doesn't, see, the, the, when you've got a negative thing, the opposite, when you're trying to undo it, you could undo it by ha emphasizing the positive. Like, if you don't like yourself, you could emphasize, I love myself, which is, how do we love ourselves more, is the question. Or we could say, let's go behind love and hate and find a place where we merely acknowledge ourselves, where we just allow our humanity. And we hear that there is negativity in us, and there is inadequacy, and we allow ourselves. And the word that I have come up with, I mean, that I'm finding most comfortable to work with, is the word appreciation. That we come to just appreciate what is. It's interesting, uh, the way I've looked at it, is that you go out into the, into the woods, and into the forests, and you look at trees and you appreciate the trees. You don't say that tree is good and that tree is bad because one tree is fat and one is thin or one is tall and one is short or one is bent and one is straight, unless you're in the lumber business. <laughs> For the most part, you just look at the trees and you, you appreciate them the way they are. They are what they are, and you can appreciate them. But the minute you get near humans, it's interesting that you immediately go into a judging mode. You come into better and worse. And you do that out of your own insecurity. You do that out of your own need constantly to be reassuring yourself. So you're saying that person is got more hair than I do, or that person is, is see, that's the one I picked. So <laughs> uh, I wonder why. That, or, or you go into... Uh, you find dimensions constantly judging and equating, am I as good as, am I equal to, am I as good a mother, as, am I as beautiful a woman, am I as effective a this, a, a worker, am I, whatever it is, whatever dimension. And you get caught in constantly living in a judging realm. And um, if you start to practice seeing people as trees, I don't mean in the, uh, you know, in the sense of just appreciating what they are, including yourself. It's just starting to appreciate yourself, appreciate your humanity. Like when I get, like I'm supposed to be, I'm Ram Dass and I'm, I've worked on myself and I'm supposed to be equanimous, loving, present, clear, uh, compassionate, um, accepting. Oftentimes I get tired, I'm angry, I'm petulant, I'm closed down. Now, for a long time, I get into those states, and I would feel really embarrassed because that isn't who Ram Dass is supposed to be. So 
I would appear like I was warm, charming, equanimous, compassionate, and I w- there was deviousness and deception involved. And then I realized that that is that's bad business because that cuts us off from each other. And I had to risk my truth. I had to risk being human with other people and realize that what we offer each other is our truth. And our truth includes all of our stuff. And the first thing I had to do was accept my own truth. I had to allow myself to be a human being. And um, I think that I was very helped by my spook friend, Emmanuel, who, um, uh, my disembodied friend, who, when I said to him, Emmanuel, what am I doing on Earth? He said, why don't you try, uh, you're in, on Earth, why don't you try taking the curriculum? Why don't you try being human? And I had always assumed the way to God was to deny your humanity and embrace your divinity. And then I realized that the way to truth might be through acknowledging the fullness of where I found myself to be, which was my humanity and my divinity. And not wallow in it, but acknowledge it. And not reverence it or judge it. Just appreciate it. Just allow it. Allow my humanity. Now take, I'm going to stop here just for a second, and then we'll play up the rest of what he says. But take this to its extreme, and there's truth, by the way, there's truth in this extreme. I remember interviewing a geneticist for another podcast a year or two ago. We had a conversation about the um, the different types of sexual orientation as well as gender expression that human beings have, and the current modern research that is being done that demonstrates that these things are not a choice, but are based in genetics or epigenetics. Um, And I'll give one example, which is that, for instance, if you are the first son in a family versus the second son or third son, fourth son, the fifth son, the further down the line you are in the order of the children that your parents have, and you're a male. So if you're the seventh boy or the fifth boy instead of the first or second boy, Your chance of being homosexual is significantly, statistically, significantly greater. And um, it also applies, for instance, to finger length. If, If I think it's your ring finger and your index finger. If your ring finger is longer than your index finger, then you statistically have a higher chance of being homosexual uh, as a male. And so we were talking about transgender. We were talking about uh, being lesbian or gay and the biology that's involved in that. And as we got to the end of the interview, I said, I want to ask you one more question and maybe we keep this on the record and maybe we keep it off. But I know that people who are opposed to homosexuality because of religion, that they tend to want to quickly move the conversation when you say like, hey, it's not a choice and these people should be allowed to live out the expression of their lives, the pushback is that, hey, you know, hey, Bill, I'm glad you want to allow these people space to be them, but that's a slippery slope. If we allow people to be them, then we'll have people having sex with children, we'll have people having sex with animals. And so I explained to the person I was interviewing, I said, this argument often comes up for me because it's the easy go-to for somebody who is uh, holding their religion and because their religion says there are certain rules in society, they have to find ways to, to bolster up that argument and to have enough evidence that they can maintain that conclusion in their own mind. 
And it's the ways in which confirmation bias um, and belief persistence work. And I said, I said, that's the argument. They, they want to come in and they want to say like, hey, that's a slippery slope. I said, let's take, for example, somebody who has an attraction towards children. Is, is it fair to say that that's also genetic on some level or epigenetic on some level? Genetic means that we can, um, that, that whether we can prove it or not, the connection is actually in um, the genes or DNA when the, the sperm and the egg meet. And epigenetics makes space that uh, in the process of the egg and sperm uh, meeting, and uh, now you have a fertilized egg, which is, you know, this zygote, um, and as it, as it develops into a baby, that all the processes that are inside the mother working, all the chemicals, um, the various degrees to which those chemicals are present, the various degrees to which the woman's body is reacting to this thing that's growing inside of her, that these processes can also cause variation in the child's uh, genetics. And we actually know that this does happen. This is how we know some of these things um, in terms of the research going into about homosexuality, for instance, or someone being transgender. And the transgender research is much further behind but with homosexuality, we can draw some of these connections. And I said, I said, is is it fair to say that someone who has an attraction to children feels has that same kind of thing going on? And she says, to be honest, it absolutely is. That that a human being who has this predisposition to have a sexual attraction towards underage children, right? Not adults. Young children, and and there are differences between the kinds of people who have an attraction to really young children versus uh, like prepubescent and postpubescent children. And she said, like that's true, like that's real. And so these people have this predisposition in their personality, in their character, in their in their humanity. And and I I didn't include it in the interview because I I didn't want to leave this giant elephant in the room at the end of the conversation that people could essentially use to marginalize further these people who are on the fringes because there are rules in our society in terms of things like consent or not manipulating, not coercing people, not uh, inflicting trauma intentionally on another human being. And so there are ways in which to parse out one behavior from another and to label one as healthy and the other one as unhealthy. But for this conversation, what it does is it forces all of us to stop and to think about a human being and their humanity and the normalcy of which this disposition shows up. And by normal, I mean, if it shows up and it's not something this person's just choosing to act out on as an anomaly in our society, but instead that this person is born with this predisposition, it forces us to at least sit with that person. And, and again, this is going to get messy because I'm all for these behaviors being wrong and bad and illegal. And I'm all for prosecuting these folks to the fullest extent of the law and putting these folks away because they are a danger to the weakest among us in our society. So I'm perfectly okay with with how we penalize 
these folks. But rather than going like, man, that guy's a piece of shit. The reality is that person is only acting out their humanity to the degree of which their humanity is. They are only being human in the way that they can be human. And it forces us, once you see them as like, oh, that's a human being who has this predisposition to this really deeply unhealthy behavior, then we all have to sit and wrestle with the kinds of judgments we make about other human beings who feel directed to live out their humanity in ways that are deeply unhealthy and different from the rest of us. I've never once had a thought about sexually abusing a child. I've never once had a, a push inside me to do some kind of harm. And this applies to serial killers as well. So a serial killer, when someone becomes a serial killer, there are certain traits that people look for those who study them. So if you watch Criminal Minds, for instance, it's a true organization called the Behavioral Analysis Unit, part of the FBI. And they study serial killers and try to figure out what makes a person into a serial killer. And what they found is, to some degree, it is the harm and trauma that their parents imposed on them. The mother is abusive, the father is absent, And it leads to these behaviors early on in their life where they are hurting and killing animals. Um, Generally, they have uh, issues with wetting the bed longer than than the rest of us did when we were learning how to to use the restroom and to control our bodily functions. And, And so here's this person who on the adult side is going out and killing multiple people and they have this hunger for it. They, they need to do this thing. And you and I go like, you know, other than being pissed at that one guy that one time where I could have just beat the living shit out of him, the reality is I've never had any predisposition to hurt someone and to kill someone. And yet this is their humanity. 200,000 years or more of trauma being po- imposed on each other has caused some of us to show up with deeply unhealthy behaviors and because of our genetics or because of the abuse that we suffer at the hands of our parents early on, we carry out lives that include deep harm and trauma to other humans. So whether it's the pedophile, whether it is the serial killer, whether it is the drug addict, whether it is the compulsive shoplifter, people struggle when their humanity includes these deeply unhealthy predispositions. And and it forces us to go like, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with a society that includes people who aren't choosing to do harm to others, but have this deep inner pull inside of them to do these egregious acts of violence and harm? And how do we, can, can we rehabilitate these people? And the answer generally is no. Can we, can we uh, solve the problem by, you know, doing this or doing that? And the reality is no. And so certain extreme measures come into play, such as a castration for a pedophile. And even that is shown to not be completely effective. And so these people do need to be locked away and they need to be locked away forever, essentially, when we as a society deem like, oh, they have this thing and this thing is going to be a burden to them for the rest of their lives. But it also forces us to, while in the mode of punishing them, 
or having, and I don't even like that word, having consequences for their choices, right? And not even their choices, but these uncontrollable behaviors and urges that they have, that it is our responsibility as a society to lock them up and to, and to throw away the key, but also to recognize that they are just living out their humanity the way they know how. And so when Ramdas talks about being in the, the forest and looking at trees and judging trees as, as acceptable, they're just, here are these beautiful things in our world, and yet some trees grow crooked, and we still appreciate the tree. And, and yet, if we take out our emotion, take out our ego, take out our judgment, and look at these situations simply from a data standpoint, these humans are living out their existence in some ways the best they know how. And it makes me grateful that that didn't show up in my humanity. But it also causes me to stop and pause and begin to have a different kind of conversation around how can we ensure that these people don't do harm to society, but also understand that they are only doing human the best they know how. And I think the conversation gets really tricky and messy when you understand that human beings are only showing up in the way that they know how to show up. And that's true for you and me. It's true for Charles Manson. It's true for the BTK killer. It's true um, for Jeffrey Dahmer. It's true for the people who abuse children. Um, I, I often wonder, like there are human beings out there who sexually abuse their own children. And like sexual abuse is, is this egregious, atrocious thing. And I place it above murder because the kind of trauma you cause another human being with, they have to live with the rest of their life. Whereas at least with murder, the person is at peace after it's all, after the act is done. And yet there are some humans out there who not only do this, uh, the most egregious thing I can think of sexually abusing children, but they, they have an inclination to do it to their own children. And I'm like, man, what a piece of shit. And the reality is like, we're all pieces of shit and we're all showing up and, and each of us feels pulled and pushed to behave in certain ways and we can get healthier at it. We can get better at it. And to some degree, I can choose, even though I have a compulsion, not to carry it out. And yet that battle isn't my battle. And I can't even begin to fathom the battle inside their head. It's easy when I'm naive. It's easy when I'm asleep, when I'm not almost awakened, to judge another human being and go like, I don't know why the hell they just don't do things like I do things. And the reality is nobody on this planet does things the way you do things. And so some level of not permission and not, not learning to live with it or making it okay, it needs to stay just as wrong and illegal. But what, but what Ram, what Ramdas is saying to the extreme is to recognize the complexity and messiness and the things we wish were not so, but which are still part of being human and ingrained in our humanity and learning some level of acceptance in the midst of that. Back to Ram Dass. So I have gotten to the point now where I am what I am much more. And some people like it and some people don't like it. And if they like it, that's their problem. And if they don't like it, that's their problem. I don't take it all on myself and as much. And... Um, <laughs> Well, it's a slow process. It's a slow process. Now, what I found was that that um, as I started to allow myself to be human more, 
just allowed what I am, things changed much faster in me. I mean, things fell away more quickly. It was as if I was locked into a model which was based on that negativity, that dislike of myself. And once I just allowed that I am human with all the foibles, things started to flow and I could feel change occurring in myself. And then I would start to experience my own beauty. And it frightened me because it was so dissonant and discrepant from the model that I had cultivated of myself over the years, that I had to do good in order to be beautiful. And the idea that I just am, that what is, when you look at a tree or a rock or a river, it is in its own way beautiful. You look at decay, it is beautiful. I know Laura Huxley, who's a very dear friend, um, in her kitchen, she has these jars over the sink and she takes old uh, beet greens and orange peels and things and sticks them in water in these long, beautiful pharmaceutical jars. And then they slowly mold and decay. And there are these beautiful decay formations and mold. And it's really garbage. It's garbage as art. And we look at it and it's absolutely beautiful. There's absolute beauty in that. And I've begun to expand my awareness to be able to look at the universe as it is and see what is called the horrible beauty of it. The horrible beauty of it. It's, I mean, there's horror and beauty in all of it because there's decay in all of it. I mean, we're all decaying. I mean, I look at my hand and it's decaying. And it's beautiful and horrible at the same moment. And I just live with that. And with that, I start to see the beauty in it. So we're talking about appreciating what is. Not loving yourself as opposed to not liking yourself, but allowing yourself. And as you allow, it changes. And so I explained to my daughter, going back to the conversation here at the beginning, I explained to my daughter like, hey daughter, we're all pieces of shit. And every day we have choices in front of us. We can, we can uh, fall to the peer pressure around us and we can... We can cave into the things that people are asking us to do. Um, and, and some of that won't affect us too bad. Like, we'll be okay. We'll make it through as adults and we'll be productive adults. Um, but also, like, for every hundred of us that do normal teenage things, for every hundred of us that do, some of us get lost. Some of us become drug addicts. Some of us um, end up getting killed in an accident of drunk driving or some other tragedy. And that my job as a parent is to try and give you space to have a normal, experiential growing up. And, and also my job is to try and keep you from falling off the cliff. And that as a parent, that, that razor's edge is extremely difficult. And I said, like, look around. Like, all of the people around you, everybody is struggling to be human and, and they're struggling with their own shadows and uh, unhealthy mechanisms. And the best that we can do, daughter, is to begin to awaken and to realize that who we are and what we are and how we behave and to begin to look inwardly at ourself because we can't be anything other than we are. But the moment you become aware of what you are, you open up the potential to be something different tomorrow. And as I look at who I am today versus what I was a year ago, many of my shadows and mechanisms have been significantly diminished and they still show up. I can't get rid of them, but I, I can 
work at being a better me so that tomorrow they show up less than they did today. But in this moment, I can only show up as I am. But being aware that you're aware allows you a new possibility in the future. And I I challenged my daughter. I said, you've got to think. You've got to think about your thinking. You have to be aware of your awareness. And that's the key to the door of all of this potential and possibility. She, she that night accepted accountability for her mistakes. One of the things that happens is that whenever I tell this child, hey, you made a bad choice, I'm sorry, but now you're grounded, she responds back with, it's not my fault, this is what was going on, I was feeling sad, I needed to do this, I needed my friends. And I said, you know, every time I come to you and I say, daughter, you've made a bad choice, there's a consequence, you make lots of excuses and your excuses feel like a way to say, hey, dad, back off, because if I don't do these things, worse things will happen. And I told my daughter, I said, daughter, what you're doing feels like you're trying to manipulate me in lessening my consequence. And I need you to be accountable for your behavior and for the consequence to be to stand and you to sit with whatever the consequence is. And that night she came into my room and said, dad, I've been thinking a lot about what you've been saying. And I tried really hard because I'm normally in my own shoes. I tried really hard to put myself in your shoes and to see this the way you are, are sharing in terms of my shadow and my deflection. And I just want you to know that I think you're right. I didn't think you were right the day you were talking to me about it. And I was Um, kind of reacting to that with emotion and ego. But as I sit with it, I think you're right. I think in those moments, I'm trying to manipulate you into making a lesser consequence, which is amazing, by the way, for a 17-year-old to put themselves in someone else's shoes, to use their empathy, and to lessen the vibration of their ego, and to move into a space where they can go like, oh, you know what? I think you're right. I'm doing this shitty thing. That is how we do shadow work. And, and part of it is recognizing that every human being is a messed up piece of shit. And I mean that in the nicest way. And the moment you grant an acceptance that someone else is just never going to do this human thing like you do it, then you begin to make space, safe space and allowance for them to begin to sit with themselves and to unlock the door of the potential in their tomorrow too. Until next time. Please consider helping us keep this podcast alive by donating. You can do that by going to the website almostawakened.org. There at the top of the page, you'll see the donate button. Click that and send a few dollars our way. This takes lots of time and prep to do this podcast, but we're excited to do it. Help us keep it going. The outro music is brought to you by Dirty Heads, Sound of Change. You can email us at almostawakenedpodcast at gmail.com. You can check us out on Facebook at Almost Awakened. You can also find us on Reddit, Almost Awakened there as well. Please join in the conversations there where you can discuss this topic and others and engage other people on this side of life who are almost awakened. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, 
or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.